0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books in Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, which is the orbit of my old PhD. I'm very excited to be talking today with Joshua schachter about his revised dissertation on Egyptian monasticism and the intentions of one of its foundational figures to reproduce the hallowed traditions of the desert fathers who come from the christian east to the christian west and we'll get to all that in a moment but first let me introduce my guest uh joshua shakterley earned his phd from the university of denver and islet school of theology in 2019 which he uh, undertook after a long career as a punk rock musician and equally long and somewhat overlapping career as a high school english teacher So, a very interesting background his uh, research focuses on the origins of christian monasticism and how early Monastic Texts Contributed to the Formation and Development of Eastern and Western Christianity in the Late Antique Period. He uh, currently writes articles on the New Testament and Early Christianity, with subjects ranging from the Didache to John the Baptist, for Bart Ehrman's website and earlychristiantext.com. And he has a forthcoming article in Cistercian Studies Quarterly on monastic uses of scripture, which I'm looking forward to. On top of all this, uh, Joshua is joining me live today in studio in the palatial Denver Public Library Studios to discuss the publication of his first monograph, uh, John Cassian and the Creation of Monastic Subjectivity with Equinox Books. And Josh, I I recognize that you uh, resisted the uh, desire to have a subtitle there as well. But it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So as a matter for our audience of full disclosure, uh, Josh and I basically navigated our PhD program at the uh, University of Denver together, and we were writing partners while we both worked on our dissertation. So this is far from the first time that I've interacted with uh, uh, Josh's work on John Cassian and monasticism. If you were to go to the great lengths of reading both his book and my book, you'll find that we both uh, cite one another as being kind of generally therapeutic in the difficult dissertating process but also in specific instances as well academically Um, but uh, of course in these podcast episodes we uh, provide a soft review and encourage conversation with authors about their work so uh, although this is not a hard critique of josh's work i do happen to think that he makes important contributions to uh, interpreting the intentions of john cassian specifically and also early monasticism in general so what do you say josh should we uh, get to it let's get to it wonderful So, in this book, you make an argument about uh, John Cassian's intentions for monasticism as he moves from Egypt to Western Europe, with a couple of other stops in between, Uh, and so he lands in Gaul, which is uh, southern uh, France today. Um, And we'll get to Cassian the individual in short order, but I wanted to start our conversation in an even more basic place uh, uh, here today. Um, What do we know about the origins of monasticism, either from Cassian or from other ancient sources? Um, Are these uh, initiated, these monastic orders, are they initiated as official church orders of monks like our listeners might know about existing in the church today? Uh, Where and why? uh, I realize I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, but but let me get to it. Uh, Where and why does this conglomeration of Christian practices achieve popularity in early Christianity? And what perhaps are the different types or flavors of monastics and key individuals associated with them in the rise of early monasticism? I'd like to
0: start by thanking you for giving me some of these questions in advance so I can not have to remember them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, speaking of monastic origins, um, there's sort of a traditional account, even in the ancient world, even in the late antique period, of where monasticism came from and how it grew. And for centuries, it was always starting in Egypt with a hermit called Antony. Um, and also, Sort of parallel to that it was another Egyptian um, named Pachomius who started off as a hermit like Antony, but instead of remaining a hermit became sort of the founder of, of larger monasteries. So it's not that those two figures weren't real or that they didn't contribute mightily to the origins of monasticism, but like most things in history, you can't take ancient texts at face value. So, um, there was surely no definable point of origin, like Antony or Macomius. Even in the uh, fairly spurious uh, Life of Antony written by Athanasius, he he acknowledges that Antony went out into the desert and learned from other monks that were already there. So um, having said that, I will say that we're, we become aware of monks as monks in the late 3rd and early 4th century in the deserts of Egypt, um, which became kind of the center of monasticism, although Um, I should acknowledge that we know now that it was also developing at the same time in Palestine.
1: Mm. Um,
0: so these groups of Christians and some, again, they're often in, in some of the literature they're, they're often characterized as, you know, illiterate peasants who are just simple people that love Lord. And the truth is there were those, but there were also very educated people and everything in between. So there was a huge diversity. Um, these people moved out to the deserts beyond the Nile Valley and the literature written about them fascinated people in the ancient world. Um, in other words, these monks and and nuns, and I, for the rest of this podcast, I will just be referring to monks, not because there were no female monastics, but because they were all called monks Mm -hmm. early on, there was no female equivalent, like a distinction. So the, the distinction between genders came later. Exactly. Um, so these monks and nuns were not, um, to answer your question, were not official orders initiated by bishops. And we have plenty of evidence that at least early on, some bishops didn't quite know what to do with them. Um, you know, what was their role in the church? These were considered holy people and lay people mostly because of their asceticism, which we'll talk about later. Um, and lay people greatly respected them, went to them for advice, um, for mediation in, in conflicts. I mean, they were clearly important, but generally they weren't ordained. And they weren't exactly lay people either. So my, this is where I get to use the Twitter thing, a secret third thing. They were, they were a separate category that had yet to be defined officially by the church. And so I think in some ways the church was uncomfortable with them early on. And you can see evidence of that. Um, so then you asked, how did monasticism become so popular? Well, the literature written about them. Spread um, the life of Anthony that I mentioned earlier was probably the first big one, and it, would, it became like a ancient world bestseller. Um, in fact, if you read Augustine's Confessions just before his conversion experience, he's discussing it with friends the life of Anthony, which I, I think he hadn't read, but they had, His friends had read. So I mean, it had gone that far away from Egypt. Um, so it was yeah, it was everywhere, and that of course means that it became that life of Anthony became sort of the ideal. That people aspire to oh well monks have to be like this what that didn't take into account of course was that like every writer Athanasius who wrote that had rhetorical purposes in mind he was not just writing that as a disinterested historian or something um he used anthony in his case as an authority to fight Arianism. Um, so in the in the story anthony is this vicious heresy fighter right he goes to alexandria and he rails against all of them and screams for the authorities to arrest him for it, and but we actually have letters written by Anthony, which aren't anything like this. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's why I say that Athanasius story uh, book is, is spurious. I think that's what I mean. Like we, we, it doesn't seem to fit the actual evidence we have of Anthony, but the point of it, the point of this is that he was such a popular figure even before Athanasius wrote this or Athanasius wouldn't have claimed him as an authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so then to talk about types of monasticism from from early on. The very first that we know of would be called Eremitic, which is you know from Eremos, the Greek word for desert, because they were solitary. And right. this, that's the word for which we now have
1: the word hermit. Exactly. Right. So Anthony being a hermit, desert vermit, a desert hermit, bit redundant. Uh, exactly etymology. <laughs> yes, exactly. But so he would
0: um Anthony, Anthony, and others like him lived in caves. Um, some lived in ancient tombs that had been disused. Uh, some built cells for themselves out of mud and lived in those. So, but they were known to be solitary and mostly, at least early on, avoided. I mean, they were out in the desert, away from human society for a reason. They thought that solitude was got them closer to God. The second type. Um, was were called lauras or sometimes pronounced Lavras, depending on how you spell it. Um, those were smaller groups of monks who lived separately, like individually isolated during the week, but then came together for a, a synaxis, like a you know a weekly worship session uh, on Sunday or to speak with the leader and get advice. Mm-hmm. So there was usually a leader and then, you know, let's say eight to 10 monks at most living in close proximity, but avoiding each other most of the week. And then finally, the one that we're most familiar with today that continues
1: today, which is monasteries, which were large groups of monks living together all the time. So it sounds like there are perhaps many different beginnings to monasticism that become normalized into kind of an official story through Athanasius and through the way that uh, these things tend to get remembered after a a significant period of time. That's exactly right. Um, So if... If these early monastics are kind of abandoning the urban church setting in Egypt, whether to um, live out by themselves in a cell or a cave or what have you, or in a Cenobitic community or in some other kind of arrangement, is it fair to say that monasticism is inherently an anti- or counter-institutional endeavor, or is that a stretch of the evidence for you? I would say that it didn't begin with the intention of being a counter-church movement.
0: However... The fact that the church was such a huge part of the social fabric fabric of the ancient world, especially the late antique period um, monks by moving outside of that system physically um, and then also by creating their own sort of system of authority based not on apostolic succession as, as bishops were, but on something else on asceticism, sort of created their own system of authority um, not apparently literally attacking clergy or the church but just existing separately from it and garnering their own authority both from lay people and from each other and so um this is evident um for example in in stories of Cassian, but also in other monastic uh literature the saints of the desert fathers the epiphygmat of patrum um where monks try to avoid being ordained which is often sort of forced upon them and the reason they try to avoid it is because it disrupts their ascetic lifestyles Um, And we'll talk more specifically about this later, but some even go to extremes, like mutilating themselves to avoid ordination. Um, The saints of the Desert Fathers seems to advocate for an independent system of influence and organization, particular to ascetics. And so um, it's parallel to, as I said, but definitely separate from religious communities presided over by bishops. So there are many stories in which not only do monks avoid being ordained, but they also kind of um, disregard the authority of a bishop. So, for for one thing, bishops come out. Don't bishops don't wait around for the monks to visit them. They visit monks, which shows a, a sort of deference already. Uh, especially the you know living as far out in the desert as they were, that took some doing to get out there and risk your life. Sure, sure. sure. And then in addition, um, despite the high status of the bishop, uh, they would show great deference to these monks by you know bowing down at their feet. Um, now, again, some of this literature was written by monks, so we have to take with it's a grain of salt. A certain portrayal of events. Right? Absolutely. But the fact, again, going back to Athanasius, the fact that he thought that it would be helpful for his position to co-opt the sort of rhetorical power of a well-known monk shows that bishops were
1: wary of the power of these monks and, and aware of it. Yeah, very nice. Um, so I have a sort of related question that is about the sources for early monasticism. You said some of them are produced by monastic communities themselves, uh, uh, whether by individual monks or cenobitic communities, uh, but they're also written about in church histories, which are kind of more traditionally, uh, institutional, we, we might say, and hagiographies and other kinds of genres and treatises. Um, You make a a wide use of this kind of material from Sozomen, Socrates, uh, institutional figures, and also the um, monastics themselves, but it seems kind of like a delicate balance between those that are internal to monasticism and those that are perhaps external to it and have only uh, uh, experienced it um, by observation rather than their participation. So uh, setting aside Cassian's work, who I promise our listeners, we'll get to eventually. <laughs> Setting his works aside for the moment, are you able to generalize for us about how the internal monastic literature might compare to the external institutional literature, maybe by uh, appeal to any uh, divergent aims and goals that it might have? And, you know, is that a fair way from from the beginning to characterize a dichotomy between the two? No, I think it is. Um, so
0: again, leaving Cassian aside, Literature produced and compiled by monks, and that includes the saints of the Desert Fathers, but also others, including the Loziac History and and many many others. Um, collection these collections of saints, etc. They most, see, d- despite some of the diversity between them, they m- they focus most on asceticism as authority. So, asceticism has to be um, correctly done, which is to say not not too extreme. Um, you know, there's a story of a monk in the Saints hanging himself over a cliff um, and, you know, basically risking dying as a form of asceticism. And he is grabbed by other monks that said, don't do that. <laughs> but obviously monks, Cassian himself writes about the Gallican monks when he arrives there being overindulgent and lazy and not, you know, not renouncing their privilege and status. That is also looked down upon and that loses them authority as monks so the main focus is asceticism and even the clergy that are mentioned in monastic literature there there are several clergy people um, focused on in some of the monastic literature like the saints they're only there because they are sufficiently ascetic the life of anthony going back to that as a good example of something written by an outsider to monasticism about monasticism um the fact that he even wanted as i said before to co-opt anthony's reputation or his own position shows that Anthony already had this exalted reputation. Um and I think that's how you often see these. You can look at the rhetorical purposes behind outside literature and say, oh well here he is the, the, the author was clearly trying to uh force the monks or a monk into a specific sort of role such that he served the church. I mean in Athanasius, for example, Anthony is extremely different to, to bishops, he, you know, make sure you bow down. He tells his disciples to all bishops when you see them and they are the only respect you have know, the only representative of all the Holy church that matters. And there's no evidence that that actually happened in monastic. literature. it's all, it's
1: all literally the opposite. Okay. So Athanasius paints a very convenient portrait for, uh, bishops yes. as they would come to interact with, uh, monastics. Absolutely. The and he's only really one example. Very good so uh you told us a little bit about monasticism as an option for christian practice in the third and fourth century and perhaps beyond that as well but um now i'm curious if we get to the subject of your book how that fits into all of this so uh my questions here are pretty basic who is john cassian uh what do we know about his biography his life his career and his writings and uh, why is he an important figure to study in the annals of christian history now so
0: Cassian, unlike, you know, fortunately, like most ancient Christian authors, is kind of stingy with the details of his biography. But I think there's enough evidence in his writings that we can fill in some of the place, and in some other people's writings about him, to tell you the truth. Um, he was born around 360 CE in a region called Scythia Minor, which is now part of a, uh, a region called Dobrugia, and is shared by Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, we know that his first language was Latin, and it's very clear from Latin that he uses that he's educated he is not just sort of cobbling this together. Um, but he was clearly also educated in Greek as well, and he uses a fair, a fair amount of Greek terms in his writing. Um, some scholars have noted also that his writing shows the influence of Cicero, which is um, an interesting sort of indication of his education, classical background almost absolutely. Yeah. He, he references several times in his own uh conferences things like uh the Aeneid and um obid and you know etc so he's he's clearly aware of that stuff and grew up probably grew up learning that stuff when he was about 20 he left his home and he went to bethlehem to join a monastery uh he mentions that his friend germanus who would play a big role in his life was at the monastery too but we don't know if he met germanus there or if germanus came from his hometown i always sort of romanticize it in my head as if the two young boys <laughs> leaving on the but who knows he Became dissatisfied after a few years, uh, about three years with the practice at this monastery. Uh, saying that they, on the one hand, weren't ascetic enough, they weren't strict enough on in their asceticism, and on the other hand, they weren't hospitable enough to strangers, which is an important value for monks. Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, actually, he's writing about this much later, oh, lot much after, later. after he's experienced a, a different environment in Egypt. Absolutely, absolutely,
0: That's interesting. yes. He'll and
1: he's honest. clearly
0: retrojecting his yeah. his future values onto yeah. this, yes, a little a bit. bit, yeah. Although, again, I often wonder how much he had read about Egyptian monks before he even got to this monastery. Like what even prompted his movie to, to the Holy Land to you know, join a monastery. Mm-hmm. So that's that's always a possibility. Um, so at the same time that he was becoming dissatisfied in Germanus as well, an older monk who had come from Egypt joined the monastery and started telling stories to Cassian and Germanus about the monks of Egypt. And, of course, like the saints, there's a lot of miracles and, you know, stories of power and things like that. And so they get very excited by this and, uh, Germanus and Cassian finally determine that they've got to leave and go to Egypt and meet these famous monks. And so they get permission from their abbot because obedience is a huge value in in monasticism, as you know, and the abbot says, okay, because this is a worthy goal to meet these monks, um, you can go, but you have to come back. They never come back. Um, (laughs) There's even some sort of indications in the conferences where Germanus says something like, we really should go back, but I kind of don't want to. Interesting. So, you know, they were young men, there we go. So they go to Egypt and according to the conferences, anyway, they, they do, they walk around several regions of Egypt. They meet many famous monks and they learn a lot. And then eventually rather than returning, they settle down in a, uh, Laura, a small group of monks. Uh, that is known as uh, basically the settlement of a group called the Tall Brothers, who are actually actual real brothers, who are apparently tall, and um, was probably led by uh, a famous theologian, Evagrius Ponticus, um, who, strange, not strangely, Cassian doesn't mention him by name in his writings, but Ca- Evagrius' ideas are all over him. Interesting. Um, and so in that little group, uh, dramatis and Cassian stay for about 15 years. So it's a decent amount of time. Well, wow. and you know, for Cassian, at least in his memories, writing later on, this is an ideal, ideal time, uh, an idyllic time. I mean, he's, he's found the hero monks that he wanted to learn from and understand. And now he's getting to actually live with them and learn their practices. And it, it's exactly what he wants. So of course it can't last. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bishop of Alexandria at the time, uh, whose name was Theophilus, uh, seems to have started up a controversy. Again, we're going by ancient documents, which we cannot take at face value, but the uh, church history written by Socrates says that the bishop decided that, I'm, I'm summarizing it a little here, sure. but he's he decided that it was important to uh, emphasize that God was embodied. That god actually has a body and cassian and his group of monks Evagrius included said did not agree with this hmm. but what's interesting is you also don't see them fighting they're not debating they're not going out there trying to convince anybody they're just sort of this is what we believe this is where out in our group out in the desert alone this is what we believe and certainly they weren't the only ones but um there were plenty of monks clearly that did also believe that god was embodied so i mean it could have. And sort of a non issue.
1: Right. And well, almost one of the many minor theological differences that appear all throughout early Christians. 100%. Yeah. Um, and if not contested, if not emphasized, if not focused on, it might have gone nowhere. So we have John Cassine and the Tuller Brothers and their little Laura, as you say, and, and they think that God is not embodied. He's not uh, um, to be anthropomorphized, as, as it were. Um, how does that lead to their? um, ejection from Egypt, right? So according to Socrates,
0: um, the Bishop Theophilus wants to sort of exert a kind of control over all the monks of Egypt. And so he, and again, this could, if true, this could go back to what I was saying before about bishops, not knowing what to do with monks. Like we can't bring them under our purview and we're sort of, we sort of owe them deference because the lay people give them deference. And so like, how do we control these people? How do we bring them under our, under our purview? And assuming that that is the way he was thinking, which is possible, he basically draws the line and says, you have to believe that God is embodied, <laughs> which always works, uh, that's a great strategy yeah, for never God fails. Else. Yeah, right. And so rather than wait for their, even wait for a response from them, he sends groups of mugs that agree with him, this, he, the, uh, Theophilus out to theirs, to the tall brother, se- settlements and, and burns it to the ground. <laughs> And basically, they are forced to flee. So at this point, Cassian is losing his ideal. Um, He and Germanus, along with the Tall Brothers, Ivagrius actually had died just before this happened. Um, He died in 399, and this happened in about 400. So they flee, and the place they flee to is Constantinople. And presumably, the reason for that is that there is a bishop. The bishop there at the time is John Chrysostom. Cruz system, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that they see the monks see authority as based on asceticism. Well, Cruz system is a very ascetic bishop. Even as a bishop, it's clear that he lived a very ascetic life, and that was important to him. Um, and so they basically run to him for protection, and he gives it to him. He even um, ordains them, but they don't run for this ordination because it's like a way to protect them. It's a way to say you can't hurt them because they're under my purview. Well. Unfortunately, soon after that, Chrysostom is attacked, Um, not physically, but um, and there's some, against in the in uh, in the church history I was talking about, uh, Socrates says that Chrysostom was partly attacked by the same bishop of Alexandria. Um, He was also attacked by the emperor and his wife uh, for saying things like those of you who are wealthy and not giving your wealth to the poor or robbing them are thieves. Hmm. Not popular with wealthy emperors or empresses. Not usually. So um, Chrysostom becomes rather beleaguered. He, he, he is exiled once, then he's allowed to return, but he doesn't stop what he's doing, so he's exiled again, and this time it's permanent. Mm. And so we don't have anything about this from Cassian, but uh, Socrates and Sozomen, actually, in, in their church histories, write about how uh, certain monks named Cassian and Germanus were sent to Rome to advocate for uh, for Chrysostom and try to get his job back, basically, mm-hmm. unfortunately, so they they were again. We don't know if they chose to or if they were sent, but I think they would have been happy to do so either way. So, unfortunately, on their journey to Rome, um, John Chrysostom dies in exile. So it becomes kind of a moot point. But when they get to Rome, we don't have any official evidence or writings about what happens in Rome. But the next time we see Cassian, just a few years later. He is in Gaul, um, where he ends his life, mm-hmm. and so he could either have been sent there by the bishop of Rome, or he could have been summoned there by the Rome, but uh, excuse me, the bishop of Apta Julia, which was a region in in uh, Gaul, who, at whose behest uh, or at whose request, Cassian ends up writing his manuals. Mm-hmm. So either way, he he winds up there and ends up writing those two monastic manuals, the Institutes and the, and the Conferences for these two monasteries that are there. And very soon after that, he dies. So that's a basic biography of him. Um, To answer your question, why is he important in Christian history? He is, as far as we know, the first recorded attempt to bring the traditions of Egyptian monasticism to the West. Um, It's not that they weren't aware of it. I mentioned that Augustine was very aware of the life of Anthony, for example. But I don't know that anyone had come out there and tried to literally say, do this, Officially do these things because that's what they do in Egypt. And that's the correct way to practice. Cassian is clearly, uh, dismayed by the practices he sees in Gaul and by the lack of renunciation that he sees the fact that, um, monks actually have a, like a high social status there and almost gain in status by becoming monks. Hmm. So for Cassian, this is just anathema. It's, how can you possibly live like this? These they're not real monks. Right. So um, yeah, it's it's clear that the bishop there also was thinking this way and therefore wanted ca- the benefit of Cassian's experience.
1: So uh, after Cassian moves to Gaul, he um, is uh, commissioned. And he also probably wants to write these two manuals as the, as you say, the institutes and the conferences, which are um, basically how we know John Cassian's ideas today. Do you want to say a little bit about the difference between the, these two uh, manuals and um um uh, uh, do you have a favorite between them well that's <laughs> a good question the institutes are much more practical if he had just left the institutes you would have
0: a kind of a strict manual of how to be a monk they talk about the clothing they wear they talk about the number of prayers they're supposed to do the you know how much sleep or how little sleep they're supposed to get how to fast all these kinds of practical issues and then this, that's the first half. And then the second half of the Institutes is dealing with what we talk about as the seven deadly sins, although he talks about eight. Uh, something he gets, by the way, from Evagrius Ponticus. Um, but even that is practical because each of them deals with, okay, when this, and, and he thinks of those vices, or as he calls them, uh, as demons. And so he thinks, he says, look, I have learned how to fight these demons. When this is assaults you, and it will, this is what you do. Okay, these are the kind of prayers you use. These are I mean, it's very practical. Okay. Now when you get to the conferences, he writes them as conversations between himself and Germanus, mostly Germanus. And uh, these really well known, famous, respected monks. Um, It's unlikely that he remembers these conversations verbatim. I mean, it's this is at least 20 years later, and he even notes that in, in the introduction. However, the big ideas he he might actually remember and he puts them into conversation so that's that
1: to, that's to say it's less practical and more abstract more theological okay. so we have uh, two writings one which it has sort of the shape of a um, a, a rule uh, as becomes popular in later monasticism or an order uh and one that kind of has the shape of dialogues between himself and germanus and the famous monks of past. correct so that's an interesting way to uh, conceptualize of these two writings for people who haven't uh, d- dove into them before now um just as we're interesting our audience about all the historical stuff i want to hit the pause button and ask uh, a question uh of you personally because i'm always interested to learn the whys behind a, a, a scholar's research and why you settle on a certain thing from what i know about you going back nearly a decade now you've been interested in monasticism for some time this has been kind of where your head's at for a while so uh how did this we might say an alternative Christian tradition initially come to your attention and why are the desert fathers and mothers that would include John Cassian, of course, even if he aims for some distance between them and kind of honoring those who came before him. Why are these, why are these people so interesting for you personally? Yeah,
0: it's a great question. And my interest preceded my understanding of my interest. Uh, I got really into this long before I even started a PhD. Um, Thomas Merton wrote, something called the wisdom of the desert, where he wrote his own translations of some of the stories and they're charming. I mean, if you read the sayings of the desert fathers, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of stuff that you would not find in other Christian sources at the time. And, um, it charmed me. And so that's one factor. Um, the other thing is I grew up in a very strict evangelical home. And I think because this is what my church and my family wanted me to believe. I believe that was the only way to be a Christian. But of course you and I know that if you study, even going back to the earliest origins of Christianity, there were so many forms right from the beginning. And so I found this a fascinating alternative to regular Christian practice or lay Christian practice, or even clerical Christian practice going on at the time and thought, well, this was a totally different way of thinking. Um, and so that fascinated me. I, I'm, I mean, uh, at the, by the same token, for the same reason, I'm interested, for example, in early Jewish Christianity and, and thinkers like uh, Annette Yoshiko-Reed and people who really focus on that stuff. And I'm interested in the Didache, as you mentioned. Right, so right. any sort of alternative to this, the mainstream story of Jesus died and then our church started? <laughs> I, really I'm, really. I'm interested. In Maybe the Shepherd of Hermes too? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, well, one more thing I want to say. just... I've always been fascinated by asceticism in general. And before this PhD and this book and all this, I was interested in how that manifested in Indian religions. Um, so for example, Jainism, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but they're extremely ascetic. but their, their purpose in doing that is non non-harm. um, they that's their whole focus is not harming anybody, not creating karma for themselves. Sure. And so that's so different from the way it's thought of, for example, by Egyptian monastics who are thinking of it more as sort of a self-emptying process. And I thought it's interesting they could have some of the same practices, but be doing it with such different intent. And
1: yeah, so in general, asceticism, I think, is a very rich topic. And we'll talk uh, quite a bit about asceticism in the foregoing, but uh, I could totally see how um, this alternative tradition, uh, knowing your background, uh, uh, was that, was that interesting to you? And you've um, uh, shown the fruits of the labors of uh, pursuing this type of study. So let's get to the book, um, the basic uh, thesis and the arguments therein. Um, So you claim that John Cassian in his written works, as we talked about earlier, the Institutes and the Conferences, uh, these uh, volumes that transmit a certain program and mindset for monastic uh, practice, asceticism as it were, uh, they envision a separation uh, between the institutional church under the leadership of the bishop and the monastery under you know, their own leadership. You say that Cassian, for example, draws from different sources of authority than the Orthodox writers of the church who are, in many cases, bishops themselves, and that both Cassian and his uh, group or cohort of monastics were often quite skeptical of figures from the ordained ranks of the ecclesiastical order. Um, can you talk us through what you call a closed discursive system of monastic discourse, as evident in Cassian's writings, and? What you observed in the institutes and conferences, for example, that indicates he was working toward an ideal of independence from the institutional church. Yeah, so as I was mentioning, I came
0: across the saints of the Desert Fathers years before I became a a PhD student. But even then, I was aware of early theologians like Irenaeus, Tertullian, um, Origen. And when I was reading these Desert Fathers who came after all of those writers, some of those early writers, Clement of Alexandria... For example, I was surprised by the fact that they were never mentioned, and I kept thinking, why would that be? Like those people were very well known, cited by other Christian authors. Like why would they not be mentioned here? All they refer to is monks. So that's what I mean when I say a closed discursive system. And I think it it basically shows that for them, the only authority over a monk could be a monk. The only proper authority, I should say. Now this isn't to say again that they're trying to tear down the church. They're not like you know Che Guevara's of the Egyptian desert or something. They're not trying to effect a coup. That would be something, yes, wouldn't it? They're just trying to say we should have a parallel system of authority over here that is not intruded upon by clerics the way that Theophilus um, in, uh, intruded upon out of the Tall Brothers and and, and Cassian. So um, the only, in fact, I was thinking about it with that question. The only reference I could find in any monastic literature that I I was aware of um, to an earlier Christian writer was one tiny reference in Glosiac history, which mentions a monk who had memorized the Old and New Testaments and many lines of origin. Hmm. So this obviously is an endorsement of origin's theology, and yet it doesn't say anything specifically, we got this idea from
1: him. Sure. They clearly did get a lot of or from uh, you know what of uh, origins copious writings they're you know, memorizing nope. from could be just commentary on a biblical book could be you know first homilies I mean it, there there's so many stuff. to go from
0: sure um, but all it says is they he memorized a lot of origin so we actually don't know if, so that just shows you how obscure it is how, how how unusual it is to ever find an earlier Christian writer cited that he's in a monastic um, so by the time I started this book. I was sort of sufficiently curious about this omission, and reading Cassian helped me to discover a possible answer to why this, why he might want that, because I think he's advocating for a parallel system of authority. Um, I spoke before of how a Bishop of Alexandria forced Cassian and others to, to flee their settlement, uh, ostensibly over their theological notions. After this, Cassian went to another bishop and Christian writer, who he also doesn't cite, um, Chrysostom, and i had to wonder if you know first being kicked out of the egyptian desert and then having to like watching this bishop that he admired so much be exiled and eventually die um due to this dodo's maltreatment i have to wonder if he thought maybe the power of bishops is can can be dangerous and maybe there needs to be a way that we separate ourselves mm-hmm. i think it's it's an assumption but i think it's a well founded assumption In reading Cassian's Institutes and Converses, I saw first that Cassian seemed to believe that what mattered for a monk was not theology. And I think that makes sense going back to, if if he's looking at Theophilus, you know, insisting that we're going to burn you to the ground because you don't believe the right thing. I think he might say that's not what monks are about, which is why they didn't fight back. Um, They instead said, yeah, we do believe this, but what matters is what we do, is our practices. And so the institutes, as I mentioned, start out by saying, okay, this is how a monk should dress. This is how many prayers they should say. This is how many psalms. All matters of practice. Um, and furthermore, he actually insists that the practices are all divinely sanctioned. So they'll say, an angel gave us this number of prayers. Um, you know, hard to argue with. the messenger message, of the Lord. Pretty high authority it is. So again, if you're receiving direct messages from the Lord on what to do, that must be the right thing to do. Sure. And it gives you a, a, at least equal authority, I would say, to a bishop. So the second part of the Institutes, as I said, deals with the seven deadly sins, but he, or eight in his case. But he doesn't just identify them. He gives them practices. And so I started to see it's all for forecasting about practice. And then when I, with that lens, if I go back and read the saints of the Desert Fathers of the Loziac history, I can see a, a similar orientation. What really matters is how you practice. And this is very different, as you know, from, you know, fourth century or and that sort of thing about, but are you believing
1: the right propositions? Mm-hmm. And if not, we're burning to the ground or, mm-hmm. you know, and even if you have the right propositions in one decade, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, when your work is reevaluated 60, 70 years later, that you're going to be declared erratic. Speaking, Speaking of origin, origin right? Exactly. Right. like, you know,
0: exactly. yeah. so uh, Cassian also claims just as another way to sort of, you know, solidify this authority that the traditions of monks go straight back to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Now, who else's authority goes back to the apostles? The bishops. The bishops. Right. So he's, to me, this is like a shot across the bow. He's saying, we are just as authoritative as you. Um, because look look at the apostles in Acts. They live, they none of them owns anything. They they share everything in common. They. It's very easy for him to put that back onto monks and say, look, we're, this is what we're doing. We took this from them. And not yeah, centuries later, we read this and decided to do it, but that it's been passed down over time. And if you're not aware of those monks in the ancient times who were doing it, you just aren't aware of them, but they're there. Um, so that is ba- basically when you helped me with the neologism, which um, instead of apostolic succession, you said you suggested, having read the, that part of
1: my writing, apostolic praxis, which makes a lot of sense to me, and which I use in the book. Thank you. And there's still an idea of succession behind it. Absolutely, <laughs> succession of, 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 of practices that are undertaken are followed of exactly. that connect one to the apostles rather than simply tracing the genealogical line back through all the you know uh, eschipal successors
0: and they don't try to even do that they don't say well i was the student of Evagrius, who was a student of that who was a." The, they don't care about the names as much as they care about are you doing the practices that they
1: did right and we know their practices
0: from the stories we have and blah
1: blah blah and i don't know if you're planning on getting to this eventually or not but there's a pretty Funny quote from Cassian that uh, appears several times in your book. I, you know, I, I hadn't thought to mention it, but it's super important. And it's actually yeah. the thing that got me
0: even <laughs> writing this dissertation in the first place on this topic. And it was, and he, what's interesting is he doesn't claim this as his own. He says, this is what the monks in Egypt all say. He says, a monk must always flee from women and bishops. <laughs> now, flee from women for an ancient Christian, and especially a monk, so, okay, that you know, get that. that. makes sense. sense. Okay. Yes. Women are, you know, temptation. Of course, he doesn't say that women monks should flee from women, but that's another story. But to flee from bishops, you're like, wait, what? Aren't they your authority? But in this case, I mean, I think there's two sides to that. On the one hand, you don't you want to flee from them because you don't want to be one of them. You don't want to be ordained because that diminishes your ascetic life and makes it harder, if not impossible, to continue. And that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, flee them because they will try to force you into um the role of a cleric, or in the worst case scenario, like
1: the Ovilus, they will literally hurt you. Or, you know, try to rope you into their heresiology or their theological ideas that you don't want to be roped into because 100%. you have the, an ascetic program of practice that you are focused on in your little monastic uh, uh conclave perhaps. Yes. Um let's see. So uh we've talked about the um experience of John Casting with the Tall brothers and uh Uh, his eviction from Egypt a couple of times already. But uh, you use this as the introduction of your book, and I thought it was really a compelling introduction because it goes into sort of this one specific controversy, one of the many in church history, about whether or not God has a body, uh, whether God is corporeal or incorporeal, as we might say. Um, Feels like the kind of a question that a Sunday school uh, student might ask in that sort of setting. And in fact, I might have asked a pastor that, kind of question myself at one point Me too. but um as with many questions that are seemingly kind of benign and just kind of wanting to know more and uh what does scripture say about this right uh, it becomes elevated as the controversy du jour and uh politicking takes place between the bishops with uh heavy ramifications heresiologically uh and kicks off the originist controversy right that ended for cassian with his exile to cause Constantinople first and his eventual uh move uh, to the West. So you say that influential and contemplative monks like John Cassian and the better educated circles of monks that he swam around with uh, had opinions about such matters, but um, uh, you also say that what mattered more to them uh, was a certain set of monastic practices advocated in his writings, and uh, thus they were animated more by praxis than theology. Um, It's compelling for me precisely because for most believers throughout history, and I think Uh, The constant battles with heresy and the calling of councils and the developments of creeds that are, you know, angled against certain people uh, exemplifies uh, this, that Christianity is predominantly or even normatively for the institutional church a set of beliefs rather than practices. What exactly does Cassian advocate for, uh, for his apostolic praxis, we might say, in the institutes and the conferences? Does he weigh in on any of the theological controversies of the day or, you know, the, the classic heretics, the heresiarchs, as it were. Uh, and can you give me a few examples of the ascetic behaviors he associates with true Egyptian monasticism and true Christianity and how these behaviors are seemingly related to uh, origin and the Vagrius and the other people who he borrows from um, to, uh, uh, to paint a picture of apostolic yeah. practice? Yeah. So, I mean, The fact that Cassian doesn't write a
0: lot about theology in terms of controversies or heresies, I should say, um, doesn't mean that he wasn't a man of his time. Um, those were everywhere. There was no escape from the the knowledge that those controversies were going on. Hmm. Um, he was a monk in Egypt in the late fourth century, and therefore he had to be aware of those and, and including, you know, Christological controversies. Um, he writes something later about against Nestorianism, for example. Um, however, and when actually he even wrote a book I was going to mention, he, he wrote a book against basically defending himself from charges of Pelagianism, um, which were made by Prosper of Aquitaine, by the follower of Augustine, um, saying, and Augustine had, hadn't said something against Cassian, but against Egyptian monks in general, he had sort of made a similar charge, which was they think that by, they can control God's
1: grace or they can invoke it by their efforts at asceticism. And that the other little incident their controversy as it were pops up in my book as well uh, because yes. uh, Cassian ropes in um, a piece from the shepherd of Hermas and it's a uh, sixth mandate about how each person is attended by a uh, angel of righteousness and an angel of wickedness so uh, yes Cassian does reflect the uh, controversies as of his day absolutely.
0: absolutely and while he writes that book I, I about you know, defending himself against Pelagianism. Um and, and he basically takes sort of a middle position, by the way, um, saying, I think asceticism is uh, and effort are necessary on our parts, but they'll never be sufficient. Grace has to be there as well. So um it's it's definitely a halfway position between what we think we know of Pelagius and what Augustine argues against.
1: Sure.
0: Um, but I don't think he would have written that had he not been accused. Mm-hmm. Um it and it's definitely his worst book you're going to start with Cassie, don't start with that book. Okay. That's called On the Incarnation of Christ. And uh, yeah, it's it's not, for me, it it, it has, has very little interest other than that it was written by him. Okay. But um, having said this, this is one of the things that interests me most about monasticism because as you say, in that time, to be a Christian meant which propositions do you assent to? You assent to these ones? Okay, then you're one of us. Do you not assent to those ones or do you assent to different ones? Well, then you're one of them. And it was constant infighting and, you know all over the place, as we know, um, from Nicaea on. Although even before that, right, Irenaeus spends quite a bit of time on heresies. I mean, Irenaeus' book is uh, on heresies. yes. how it's no, Well, there, too, like, it well against the word, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this was not a new thing, but it was even more ramped up, I would say, after Nicaea made it seem like those that was the official Christian position for those. Work. So um, what, what I find interesting about that is that in monastic literature, for example, in the saints of the desert fathers, um, there seems to be a general ethos discouraging that kind of controversial debating or arguing, um, as an example. Um, and again, want to make sure everyone knows I'm, I'm not taking these texts at face value. Um, these are idealizations done for rhetorical purposes. However, there's a great story, um, or quote from, from the saints where a monk gives a younger monk advice, you know, the, the monk, the monks often go to elder monks and say, give me work, word, tell me how to live. And the monk gives some basic stuff, you know, don't eat too much, control your tongue. Etc. Then he says, don't argue about the image. And what he was referring to is the controversy of what it means that humans are made in the divine image. Does it, and this goes back to God being embodied or not? Does that mean that God looks like us? And the, so he created us to with bodies that look like his body? Mm-hmm. Or does he mean that there's this sort of internal spark, more like origins kind of idea? Mm-hmm. And this guy doesn't say, take aside this particular monk. He says, just don't argue about it. And there are many, many stories like that, where they say, don't argue with me. Don't do it. Just skirt past, skirt past the theological controversy and do your practice and you know, do what you're supposed to do. So I found that fascinating. And even in the case of the controversy that resulted in Cassius exile, when the way that it's written in the church history of Socrates, as I say, there's no fighting back from those monks. They don't say, No, you're wrong. They just happen to believe that and they and people know it because they've gone out and talked to them, including the bishop. And the bishop decides, No, you can't do that there or we're gonna kick you out. But there doesn't ever seem to be any debate between the two. So, I mean, for, I, I think for that reason, there was that, that sort of ethos was already established by the time Cassian got to Egypt. And I think in general, while you cannot at all say there were no theological controversies among monastics, okay. but that doesn't seem to be the focus of those who wrote and compiled the literature, including Cassian. Okay. Um, the, what mattered was, are you practicing? correctly? Um, and Practicing correctly, as, as you asked, um, for Cassian, it means a lot of things. It means, for example, things like how much one should fast. Although, for example, he, he does say, I've tried many different rules of fasting, and there is not one that works for every person because people have different levels of health and strength. So, you know, it has to be, it has to sort of be a trial and error. Um, how many prayers to say, which he gives an exact number. Uh, and at what times and when should I observe silence? And when should I, when can I speak? And all these things include practices that he thinks of as emptying the self of this worldly self and instead allowing that self to be filled with divinity. So, um, a, a word that doesn't, he doesn't use, and that isn't used much at that time, or maybe it is, I'm not aware of it, but that it's used later in Orthodox theology, uh, in the middle ages is theosis. So becoming divine, and that's what that is. That's, that's the point of asceticism for them is, is this sort of union with God, as opposed to sort of just being near to God, which is more of a Western
1: sort of, uh, th- I think Gathanasius also sees theosis as no, that's a goal worth ascending toward. I okay. would agree. There's probably have different ideas on quite how to get there. So I would agree. But, um,
0: the other thing to say about, I guess if you had to, if you had to narrow Cassian's idea of asceticism down to one word, it would be renunciation. Okay. Um and he uses that word again and again, especially in the conferences. Um, so, as I say in the in my book, the monks of Gaul were generally in the upper classes, and they they you know they they go to the monastery. Some, there were even stories that I found uh, researching that of monks in Gaul who would spend the week days at the monastery and then go home to their mansions and party on the weekends. Like it's like I don't know, like a Fred guy. Form of monasticism or something. It was very, and of course, this was horrifying. To him. Was right, like, you're not a real monk. Get out of here. Right, um and so, um you know, for for a monk, the way that Cassian thinks of a monk, you take everything away from that monk that connects him to his worldly life or or her. So when you first come in, they they take your clothing, they take all your possessions, they don't throw them away or even use the money. They keep them separate, and if the person ends up leaving, they give it back to what um, they. Do, even the robe, that they get doesn't really belong to them. It belongs to the monastery. Hmm. So nothing is your, your, you own nothing is the ideal. And that means that in a sense, you become nothing, um, ownership. I talk, I refer to another book in my book, uh, Agamben's book mm-hmm. on poverty and monasticism and the fact that monks later on, especially in the middle ages, make a difference between ownership and use and. They are allowed. Monks are allowed the use of many things: of the robe, food they eat, utensils the or tools they use for manual work. But they don't own those things, and I think that's important because they don't define them. They're only defined by their
1: practices, like a communal pra- a communal uh, ethos of you can't take it with you. That's how oh, they that rest. Yeah um and um so asceticism has its benefits uh um as it's described in the literature so um uh, but this is not the way that you portray it this is the way that i took it as i was reading um but they seem uh kind of like magic that they have magic sounding powers in episodes that you uh, survey so for example uh one of them basically commands a crocodile to die so that the other people can cross a river for a church service and the crocodile dies after the uh after allowing the moat to uh, surf across his back across the river, um, ascetic monks are also able to perform as healers. Um, and whether we call that magic or something else, uh, uh, the, what empowers that is the monastic's expertise in asceticism. So uh, it seems that asceticism is the basic currency in monastic thought, and it's as well reflected in Cassian's own writings as well as the uh, Apothigmaton. Hope I said that right, really the Sayings of the Desert Fathers. Um, you suggest that asceticism arises as the most laudable form of Christianity around the time when uh, martyrdom is no longer taking place, because Christians are, of course, now the powers that be, and even though they're maybe attacking one another, there's not uh, martyrdoms as we uh, think about them happening in, uh, when the Romans are in charge, for example. Uh, um, these ascetic practices can border on the extreme in their own right. You talk about monks who subsist on basically morsels of bread and water a day, uh, but they contrast, especially with the portrait of Western monasticism in Gaul, where Cassian is looking to import or evangelize his Egyptian um, monastic program. Um, I think you say also that Augustine, uh, figures like Augustine, are impressed by what these uneducated desert dwellers are doing, based on his reading of the life of Antony. Um, where I'm going with all this is, I'm, I'm curious if you can elaborate on the differences in practices between what happens in the eastern monasteries that Cassian grows up in or he's raised in perhaps and those that he arrives at uh, in Gaul Um, what is the communal life like what do they do with their time in different places and how does Cassian try to reform the west to look more like the east yeah so
0: um, as I mentioned earlier Christian monasticism developing in Egypt and Palestine first was really an eastern phenomenon and of course, that even goes back to writers like Basil the Great, um, who were monastics that then became bishops, but you know were very focused on asceticism. The Cappadocian Fathers in general, um, so that sort whole sort of uh, ascetic ethos, um, I think was a was part and parcel of the theology and practice of monks in Egypt as well, and they, the Egyptian monks that, in that sense, uh, influenced the Cappadocian Fathers, and vice versa. But um, we have indications from Augustine, but also from Gallican ha- hagiographies, you know, um, people in Gaul writing of monk saints in Gaul. Um, the monasticism in the West was conceived of very differently with reference to asceticism. So in the East, as I said, the Cappadocian Fathers, Chrysostom, they emphasize the need for self-denial. And I remember reading something of Chrysostom's where he's, you know, he's, he's giving a homily to lay people in his, one of his students' his church, and he's saying go out and see what those monks do do the same he's telling lay people to do what monks are doing it's, it's it's ridiculously audacious to say that and i hesitate to think that any of them would do it but he, he seemed to think that that was it was that important asceticism was that important that everybody should be practicing so this is kind of uh cassian's thinking as well um I, but although i should i should mention that again Nobody that I'm aware of ever came up with universal rules, like, you know, everybody should fast this much, or everybody should do this number of prayers. Um, The general indication, though, was that by refusing for the East, was that by refusing to fulfill one's desires, and specifically one's sort of worldly desires, things like sex and food and entertainment and uh, money... And reducing one's needs down to the bare necessities for existence. One could sort of transform oneself and orient oneself away from the survival of the body and status and toward the spiritual. Now, in the hagiographies written in Gaul, especially of, uh, and Martin of tours, you see a very, very different kind of thinking. Um, they are clearly seen as just as morally good, but they regularly interact with Kings. Spend time feasting with kings and and noblemen, they, and uh, Martin of Tours in particular gets basically an emperor's funeral when he when he dies. There's a huge procession; people come from all over. Now again, this is a hagiography, so take sure. it with a grain of salt. slide. Sure. the fact that that would even be seen as a good thing to do, um, I remember reading one of the stories of the Desert Fathers of um, a monk named Arsenius, who ironically came originally from Rome, but then moved to Egypt to be a monk. Um, he's dying and his two disciples say to him, what should we do? We've never like buried a body. And he says, first of all, do not dare let anybody honor my body. Mm -hmm. Like no relics, none of that stuff. And they said, well, so what do we do? We've never buried a body before. He goes, how about you just attach a rope to my ankles and drive me to the desert, drive me out into the mountains. So they can eat animals. Very different from having Kings and bishops and everybody following in a procession honoring you. So, um, yeah, and that would have baffled Cassian. That the whole idea that monks should be high in high status and even high wealth. So, um, I mentioned before there are so many stories in the in the Desert Fathers and and Cassian of bishops who come out to visit monks, you know, risking their lives really to go out into the desert because they need advice from a monk and they want to honor this monk. Um, sometimes. The monks don't even want them there. Uh, the same monk Arsenius, who I like to call the uh, the grumpy monk, he he is reeling into solitude. He doesn't want to have anybody around ever. And when a monk comes out, uh, excuse me, a bishop comes out to visit him. He says to the bishop, "If I tell you what to do, do you promise you'll do it?" And he says, "Of course." And he says, "Whenever you hear where I am, don't go there." I love that story. Like he can he can say that to a to a bishop yeah. and not get in trouble. And the bishop apparently just stands up and says, "Yes, sir," and walks away. So there's, there's a power there, and that power has nothing to do with the bishopric, whereas in, again, in the West, the the bishopric and the and monasteries are definitely more closely tied at the time that Cassian is there in the 5th century. In terms of Augustine specifically, we know that the Pelagian controversy for him, he he kind of railed against Egyptian monasticism, even though he was into it originally, um, for saying that what what he thought was um, a, a bold assertion that our efforts invoke God's grace, or in other words, almost saying that we control God with our efforts. And he said, I mean, for him, grace was so ineffable. You, you literally could not even determine to whom it would go or why, so you just kind of had to hope that God's grace would be with you. And um, so for him, asceticism was sort of exclusionary it was sort of you know it's God should God's grace should be available to everybody equally and so to say that these super monks who are out there in the desert not eating for weeks um, are the only ones who get God's grace doesn't isn't fair doesn't make sense it isn't how God operates so that's sort of Augustine's view in other words being super ascetic isn't important mm-hmm. what's important is knowing God's grace and asking for it although again God's grace seems to be kind of capricious and who knows if you'll get it or not
1: But for Cassian and for, you know, the classical monks from uh, Egypt, asceticism is kind of the highest, of the highest uh, order, highest value. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the formation of monks in the kind of Egyptian model, perhaps. Um, Thinking about what we know about the late arrival of monasticism in the third century, monks are still eager, as we said, to write their history going back to apostolic times, characters like Elijah and John the Baptist as prefiguring monasticism and Especially for cenobitic communities, thinking back to Acts 2, and 4, where believers are said to pool resources and shared meals and so on. Um, the institutional church wants to show its attention to the apostles It is this top down chain of su- succession, apostolic succession from Jesus to apostles to bishops. And you suggest the logic of apostolic praxis is it active in monastic thought or monastic communities. So I want to ask this functional question about um, how these um, monks. Uh, connect back to apostolic times via their practices and how they form monks for a specific way of uh, operating a subjectivity as it were right um how do these monastic communities take an individual uh, who expresses an interest in joining them and you mentioned they obviously they give them to close that's one but how do they take them and turn them into an issue init- in their apostolic self-emptying practices in this community what does initiation look like if you were to uh, show up on the door of one of these? Uh, Vedic communities in Egypt. One day, and uh, tell them you want to join. Yeah. So Cassian,
0: I always wonder how it, you know, how much these are idealized and not. But what Cassian says is that when someone wants to join a monastery, so let's say they go up to the gates or the door of a monastery and they knock, they are ignored and kept waiting outside for at least ten days, if not longer, as a way to test their their perseverance. How how strong is their desire to be a monk? Um, and in addition to that. Other monks will come by and insult them, maybe kick them. Like, just basically, can you put up with horrible treatments and, and, you know, not getting what you need? Basically, can you be a real ascetic? And this is your first test. Mm -hmm. And I have to assume that a lot of them went, no, and less. (laughs) And they noped out. And they noped out. Um, However, if you get in, this is when, this is only the very first phase. When you first get in, you get to be, you get to be what would be called, I guess, an initiator, a novice, but you're not officially part of the monastery yet. You have to prove yourself still. So that ceremony where they, what comes next to the ceremony, they don't just give you new clothes and say, go change. They literally in front of the entire monastery, strip you down, take all your possessions. So that's, you know, the humility they're always going for, they're always talking about. And put on the new robe which makes them you know no longer do they own anything they're, they're participating in the life of the monastery instead but they're not officially in the monastery what happens at that point is they're given to what would be called now i think the hospitaler who is a person that lives outside just outside the monastery and he's he's in charge of taking in strangers who um need hospitality or travelers for example and this guy the the young novice he is basically his assistant and is is forced to serve these people um how no matter what sort of socioeconomic status status he came from originally he's now a servant and you have to do that for a year after a year you get to you get assigned to the person who will be your monastic elder or your teacher and so cassian talks about how the main job of that elder is to get you to conquer your desires well how does he do that the main thing is he makes them do things that are either repulsive or ridiculous, and it's to see if the monk will obey, even if it doesn't make any sense. And there's lots of stories of monks obeying ridiculous things, like a uh, elder monk pointing an antelope and saying, look at that turtle, and the <laughs> the his student going, yes, yes, sir, that's a turtle. Um, or, you know, writing something, and in the middle of writing it, he gets a call, you know, he hears a call from his elder, he stops even writing the letter he's writing, and immediately goes. Things like that. The, the best story for me, it, it, Cassian tells it, and it's also in the uh, Sayings of the Desert Fathers, is a young monk, is told, so uh, his elder picks up a dry stick and sticks it in the ground and says, you need to um, water this every day until it blows. It's never going to blow. It's there in the desert. And the other problem is the water is, I think they say it's about six miles away across the desert. So every single day he needs to walk 12 miles to get water and bring it back. And he does it without complaining for a year and then the, the the uh in the sayings it becomes miraculous the thing actually blooms <laughs> but in cassian the guy and so the guy pulls up the stick and throws it away okay you've proven that you're obedient so these kinds of things get the monk to do things that against his own desires which are supposed to teach him to be obedient no matter what
1: which is supposed to conquer his own will and it's not like to trick the initiate right it's not it's not like saying go find a board stretcher to the novice or the apprentice that comes into a carpentry shop right no but you're trying to see can it's they functional can it, they obey sense. the uh, lenniest ideas yes with absolute um obedience i mean give up your own will right it's said over and over and over
0: again and, and that is seen as a way to allow the divine will to work through
1: Mm. Uh, so there's a theoretical piece uh, kind of hanging out there that uh, you get to in the middle of your book. And you're so you can analyze Cassian's institutes and conferences uh, by bringing in the contributions of a 20th century French theorist and philosopher Michel Foucault uh, as a way to conceptualize the rhetorical work that Cassian performs when he imports this Egyptian man- monasticism sorry, into a new context. Uh, Foucault is most famous for the ways he described his, in his writings and his lecture series, how power establishes itself, operates, reifies itself, and so on, uh, especially through the formation of subjects, uh, and that uh, you know appears in your title, of course, uh, that are useful to a system of power. And you admit that Foucault's ideas are most germane to sort of the industrial age and the centuries immediately predating that. But uh, you also appeal to these Foucaultian concepts of disciplinary power, pastoral power, biopower, and overall uh, governmentality to explain how uh, John Cassian institutes a group subjectivity or basically a self-sustaining monastic culture that is distinct from the institutional church and driven to particular ends that are, you know, that internalized by the monks that make up that community. And you explain these concepts sort of at a basic level for peoples whose head might spin at Foucault, (laughs) uh, for one, and um, provide a few key examples of how you see them as operative in Cassian's writings. Yeah. So, The writings of Michel foucault
0: uh specifically his theory of the creation of subjects uh really helped me to conceptualize and analyze the function of cassian's writings um a close reading of cassian's writings through the lens of foucault uh, showed me that cassian was uh doing trying to do two things trying to shape the individual subjectivity of monks and i'll talk about what that means in a second and Next, trying in turn to form a larger, unified, collective monastic subjectivity, which might ultimately rival the authority of the clergy. Hmm. So when we talk about the the word subjectivity for Foucault, this means a a social construction whose vantage point is the result of the constant interplay of multiple forms of power. That's probably as clear as much. (laughs) In other words, the subject is one who combines and internalizes multiple forms of power in her, her her own social role. So for example, when I say casting is trying to shape the subjectivity of monks, I mean that he is attempting to give them an ideal based on Egyptian monasticism and make them see themselves as aspirants toward that ideal. In other words, you are monks in in as much as you participate in these things that I tell you to do. Um, Foucault identified three means or methods by which subjects are created. And I think this is these three are what kind of like took me aback and made me think, oh, this seems like what Cassian is doing. So first, uh, modes of investigation create subjects as objects of knowledge. And Cassian does this by observing the monks of Gaul and comparing their practices, not in his head, but in his writing Hmm. for his audience to the idealized monks of Egypt. So in other words, he's looking at them and saying, I'm watching you and I'm seeing that you do this, but the Egyptian monks do this. So he's basically trying to make them decide, am I going to be a monk? Then I have to do what he says setting them up to say a true monk does this. Um, Second, practices and procedures divide subjects both from within and for other subjects according to standards of norm and deviance. So monks are divided within by Cassian's rhetoric in the sense that he tells them to watch over themselves as if one part of each monk is a guard and the other a prisoner (laughs) who must be made to conform. I mean, this also goes along with Neoplatonic thought, right, where there's different parts of the soul um, and the the, the higher soul sh- should shape the lower soul
1: and this same sort of agent thinking. I
0: think that was sort of just in the air.
1: And Hearing that especially, it, uh, it totally rings a bell out for Cassian, the idea that a person is attended by an angel of righteousness who kind of tells them what to do, exactly. like how, how important that would be for his, uh, um, for his mindset.
0: Absolutely. No, 100%. Yeah. Um, so... That's how monks are kind of divided within themselves by Cassian's rhetoric. Uh, They're distinguished from other subjects. So that would be lay people or any non-monk really, so clergy as well, Um, or even monks who practice incorrectly. So basically this is a way to say true monks are this. You must separate yourself from those monks who don't do that. And I'm sure I have to think there were a lot of monks in Gaul who were pretty comfortable and were like, we're not going to go there. Why why does he want to change? Our lives are awesome um third practices and procedures of self-management are introduced by which subjects transform themselves as subjects to meet an externally imposed ideal so cassian's list of proper monastic behaviors includes a strict daily routine routine excuse me control of appetites both elementary and sexual and frequent confession of one's most shameful thoughts to one's spiritual master in other words and this is this is the very definition of governmentality the conduct of conduct in a way to shape their conduct by making them shape it themselves, Mm. self-management. So these practices or technologies of the self in Foucauldian Foucauldian parlance then intersect with Cassian's rhetorical techniques of domination to create a unique form of monastic subjectivity. So that's what I see is happening in in his rhetoric. Uh, Foucault also outlines, as you said, several types of power that operate in this process of forming subjects. So the first that you mentioned and that that he mentions is disciplinary power. Disciplinary power as opposed to sovereign power. Sovereign power is I'm going to beat you to death if you don't do what I say. Um, Disciplinary power is achieved mostly through surveillance. So he, Foucault discusses in one of his uh, books, the prison known as the Panopticon, which I don't believe was ever actually built, but conceived of by Jeremy Bentham, in which there's a watchtower in the center with cells in a circle around it, facing it. The person in the watchtower or people can see all the cells and all the people in them, but the people in the cells can't see the person in the watchtower. So then they are forced to assume that someone is watching them all the time, and then, as a result, they end up policing themselves. So um, the idea, this idea, I think, gets translated in Cassian's writings in the sense that a true monk must reveal all of his thoughts and actions to his elder. If you don't, the elder will find out anyway. Um, there's a certain sense in which monks are... Monks conceive of their minds as transparent to those who are superior to them. And so why wouldn't one police one's own thoughts and actions as much as one could in order to basically take part in the benefits of what it means to be a monk, spiritual benefits, conceptual benefits, etc. Um Another form of power Foucault mentions, as you said, is pastoral power. Um, and this modality of power is tied to the notion of a ruler and or deity as a shepherd, you know, Lord is my shepherd. For example, who must control his charges, but is also responsible for their safety and well-being. Um, and this is certainly what the abbot is responsible for and certainly what Cassian sets himself up as. So Cassian himself plays the ultimate pastoral role in these writings, trying to shape the most thoughts of behavior while being concerned for their salvation. Their spiritual well-being. However, he also notes that the elders in a monastery have this role and must execute it constantly. Hmm. This is not the sort of you can go to sleep and let them do what they want and then eventually talk to them about it. You must be on constant vigilance. Um the other thing about pastoral power is it's it's not a privilege as in being a king. It's rather a duty. I suppose a king could take it as a duty, but generally it's a privilege. So in this case it is it is an obligation. And then finally, Foucault talks about a form he calls biopower. And now biopower at first didn't seem applicable applicable to me because it's a lot about um what he says is the techniques for achieving the subjugation of bodies and the control of populations. And he talks specifically about the, the initiation of demography. So checking, you know, how many people are there, how many children are they having, how many resources do they need as a way to sort of control the population. We know this. However, um, I do think there's a way in which you could draw a parallel where the monastery demands total control of the most bodies by controlling their time. In a monastery, there are a bell rings and you show up for this prayer. Then that's done and you go do your manual work. Then you, So everything is controlled to the minute, all the time. And this is certainly what Cassian writes about. Uh, Foucault would call this taking charge of life, this is a quote, uh, more than the threat of death, which gave power its access to the body. So by controlling monks' time, the abbot of the
1: monastery ultimately controls the body. Uh, so, these forms of power overlap in certain ways, because like the abbot or the elder has a surveillance role, and they're also, I have a, a pastoral role, and so on and so forth. Um, it's interesting uh, looking at that through a Foucaultian lens, but I'm also interested how you uh, came about to use Foucault in this process in, when you developed your dissertation. So, for example, you know, at several points in his scholarship, Foucault himself appeals to John Cassian, Cassian. as sort of a thought partner, I suppose who exemplifies his theories, but Foucault is also uh, in some quarters, an eminently in vogue philosopher to, uh, to use in, in uh, you know even early Christian works like this. So how did these two subjects, so to speak, Cassidy and Foucault, uh, end up married in your analysis? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and My own wife wanted to know that. She was like, how did you bring
0: those two together? So the, answer, the short answer is um, obviously our program was mostly faced uh, focused on biblical studies and early Christianity. However, I happen to take a course in the philosophy department um, that inclu- that was about um, post-structuralism. And Foucault is one of the many people that exemplifies that. So we did a big focus on Foucault. And one of the things we read was uh, him talking about the- his theories of power vis-a-vis the creation of subjects. And at that time, I had just started really getting into reading Cassian's work. And it started to think, He's trying to shape these people. He's trying to make them into the person or people that he thinks they should be. That is a creation of subjects. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And this led actually to an independent study in the philosophy department with on Foucault, which um, allowed me to just you know really dive deep into Foucault's work. And I started to see his theories as operational, not just in Foucault, but most of monastic literature, a lot of power dynamics, obviously. And so they helped me understand you know, the implicit and explicit exercises of power within monastic settings. So by the time I got to the dissertation, I knew that his theories were going to be helpful for me. Um, they also, to be fair, made it a much longer and more difficult process. <laughs> I but that. I think they were
1: helpful. I believe that. Uh, so uh, somewhat of a heavy accident. It's yes, like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um. In your fourth chapter, and I think it also spills into your fifth chapter, you unfold your reasoning for imagining Cassian's uh, monastic program as one that is ideally separate from the institutional church. So you talk, for example, of the open defiance of bishops and clergy in the monastic literature, of monks that go to extremes to avoid being recruited into uh, the institutional clergy for whatever reason, uh, various probably. And finally, you discuss how the events of Cassian's career exposed him to sort of the politicking, the theological disagreements, and all the things that he didn't want to deal with. the Weaponization of exile, and uh, all the things that would disrupt someone from living you know, the perfect ascetic Christian life. And you share a little bit of this evidence with us and the reasoning behind, I guess, their desire to avoid both clerical appointments and political squabbling, and also why you see these as indicative of wider Egyptian trends. So this is not just something that Cassian himself believed, but this is kind of a a wider belief among uh, the Christian uh, monastic tradition that uh, uh, Cassian inherits from Egypt. Yeah. So you say, for example, that Cassian was representative of a type of monastic thought and that while monks were not monolithic, even back then, they trended toward a place of sort of removed from the messy urban life of the church. So can you talk us through all
0: that? Yeah, absolutely. So Before reading Cassian extensively, I had already noticed that the apothegmata of the saints seem to idealize a sort of independent system of influence and organization based only on ascetic virtue. I mean, I was thrown a little bit at first when I saw how many clerics and even a few lay people were focused on in the apothegmata. But then when you look at it, it's because they're really ascetic. So that's the, the common value, the common traditional um, focus of, of everything in, in that writing and in much of monastic literature. So the rival claims of bishops and monks still provided reasons for competition. Many lay people saw monks as holier and therefore worthier advocates with the divine um, than clergy. So if, for example, as Socrates writes, Bishop Theophilus didn't really care about the, the-, the theological controversy, but was just exercising power over the monks, um, this means that Cassian experienced the dangers of ecclesial power firsthand, and he saw the same thing, I think, with Chrysostom's Chrysostom. So um, I argue that these experiences combined with his career as a monk in Egypt made him want an independent monastic authority, not subject to the whims of clergy. And as we know, I mean, some clergy, I think, were quite thoughtful in, in their practice and in their um, way of life and in what they preached. And some just sort of had whims. And if they wanted to exercise power for some reason or gain wealth, they could do that. So um, Cassian, I think, probably didn't want to be subject to that anymore. So in terms of competition between clergy and monks, there are many stories in Cassian and other sources of bishops, as you mentioned, forcing ordination of monks. Like literally sending henchmen out to the desert, grabbing these people and carrying them back and um, will be part of the clergy. And of course, many of them run away um, or hide or do other things. Uh, this was likely to attempt to co-opt their power and status of lay people. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think at this point, the, the role of monks was not clear in the church. And so the, the church, the institutional church and its representatives were not sure what to do with them. And yet they couldn't deny their popularity um, with the lay people and, and their power. So um, why would monks want to avoid ordination? I think for two reasons. Um the first is that ordination afforded one such high status and wealth, actually, that they figured you could not maintain the humility you're supposed to maintain as an ideal monk as a as a bishop. Now maybe there there seem to be some who are said to have maintained it anyway, but surely it would have been more difficult than if you lived in a in a mud hut in the desert. Um and then second, you know, since asceticism was the basis for their authority, if you are suddenly a wealthy bishop and in charge of many, many people, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to maintain that ascetic regimen, which they thought of as virtue. So, I mean, I I think that was the main reason that they wanted to avoid ordination. They, they, in a sense, thought that, I wouldn't say, it's too strong to say they thought of bishops as the enemy, but they thought of them as a separate form of authority that they didn't want to partake in. Sure. and I, you know, I mentioned that the most extreme one is where the, the monk is being forced to be ordained and he cuts off part of his ear right in front of the henchman and the henchman and, and says, I'm doing this because in Le- in Leviticus, it says that someone who is uh, mutilated can't be in the priesthood. So these henchmen go, yikes. So they run back to the bishop and the bishop says, I don't care if he cut his nose off, go back. Ordain him anyway. So they go back and they say, The bishop said ordain you anyway. And he says, and he takes the same knife with which he cut off his ear. And he says, If you make me become a clergyman, I will cut out my tongue. And at that point, they give up. But that is extreme, right? I mean, like that, that, that one really struck me is like, my God, this guy was, would rather like die than become a, than become a, a bishop or a priest. And, and it just seemed like shocking. So, um, I guess, While that's an extreme example, there are so many examples in there of monks running away from it that it started to seem like it had to be a trend, right? So um, as you said, the monks monks in Egypt were not monolithic. They were clearly different factions and different beliefs and different practices. Um, But Cassian was definitely part of what later came to be called originists. Um, They, even though... Evagrius, I don't think, ever mentions Origin. I don't think... Cassian definitely doesn't mess, mention Origin, And for good reason. At that point, Origen was being sort of questioned and would ultimately be anathematized. But at this point, it's just that his ideas are part and parcel of their practice. I mean, the way they interpret scripture, their um, commitment to asceticism, their whole idea of sort of rising with prayer, ascension to you know union with God. I mean, that sounds like origin mixed a little bit with Neoplatonism. So, I mean, in that strain, um, in that, excuse me, in that, in in that strain of, uh, of monasticism, some sources are distinctly originist. Cassian, obviously, Evagrius, obviously, the Loziac History is very originist. But then the Apothegma actually kind of denigrates origin At one point saying that, uh, having a a monk that is, you know, that is one of the main focuses of the, of the piece, um, actually like yell at someone for listening to the ideas of origin. So there was clearly not a monolithic idea of we all do this and we all believe this. Um, there were also many different reasons for becoming a monk. This one surprised me. You don't see this in much of the monastic literature because they're idealizing. But in letters and things like that, we know that for example, um, sometimes older people that had no support from family needed a place to stay and food. Sure. They would join a monastery. Sure. Um, sometimes single women who had infants same reason they would join in their and their babies would be allowed to stay mm-hmm. so i mean there, there was a lot of there were a lot of different things going on in early monasticism and if you only read the things like the apothegments or cassian you get this idea that oh we all in the desert do this but it clearly was not the
1: case um and it's a lot messier than it looks like i feel, i believe that absolutely um so uh, i have a Question about what Cassian might have thought about uh, typical or normal Christians in sort of the urban setting under the institutional church who, you know, paid uh, the necessary uh, fealty to the bishop and so on, that, you know, basically were happy living in their parish being uh, an urban dwelling Christian. Uh, You say, for example, that Cassian implicitly sets up a duality between Egyptian monasticism as the highest practice of Christianity and church hierarchs uh, as examples of inferior representatives of a spirituality and ascetically deficient, albeit necessary institution. So it seems that he and other monastics are not exactly looking down upon clergy and, tr- and traditional urban church membership, but at the same time, these are denigrated perhaps silently as being imperfect forms, if they are the perfect form of Christian piety, right, by comparison to Cassian's ideals. So uh, well, what does Cassian think about uh, typical Christians in, um, in the 5th century as well? So the, the easy answer is he, he,
0: he almost doesn't mention them at all. And however, um, based on what he does talk about, I would say that he, well, so first of all, when it comes to church hierarchy, when it comes to bishops and other clergy, we're pretty clear that he, he seems to generally conceive of them as necessary, but not as, not as good of Christians as he and his fellow monks. Here. Yeah. Um, Unless they prioritize asceticism. And again, in a lot of the writings, you have bishops who prioritize asceticism. They're okay. Chrysostom is okay. Um, you have lay people who wear hair shirts while they do their manual work and uh, give half of their money to the poor, even though they need it. Those guys are okay. So it, it has much more to do with, much less to do with a title like bishop or monk than it or lay person even, than it does with, are you ascetic? Are you committed to ascetic virtue? Yeah, and so um, I would say that, well, and that's why, for example, he cites figures who were not officially monks, like Elijah and John the Baptist, as monastic progenitors. He can he's comfortable saying that because they were sufficiently ascetic. Um, he definitely never denigrates clergy directly. He never says all bishops suck or, you know, <laughs> that, that would probably be a burn at the stake or something. Um, mm-hmm. however, and and he certainly, you know, for example, he he does prefer to take communion or, or the Eucharist from the hands of a clergy person. Um, although I do point out in the book, some people have said that monks could give each other if they were sufficiently, uh, isolated from a church, they could give each other the Eucharist. That was fine. But he, he does think that that's a necessary form of the church. And he thinks that the church in general is necessary, especially for lay people. So he definitely would not say get rid of the church or get rid of bishops. Um, He just thinks that Egyptian monasticism does it better. Um, They are the best Christians, and in that case, I I would say that any aspersions cast upon the church are sort of more implied than explicit. He does, at one point, denigrate Jerome and Basil of Caesarea, um, saying that they are certainly great writers, uh, but they don't know ascetic practice from experience like he does, but rather from hearsay. This is obviously false. Those two were extremely ascetic. Um, However, I have to think that since Basil was a bishop and Jerome worked for the Bishop of Rome, that this is a subtle dig at the at the clergy saying like, okay, they're ascetics in scare quotes. Um, It's pretty subtle, but I think, again, he's 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 not denying the necessity of clergy um, and certainly not of, of lay people who are good Christians in the church. He's just saying monks
1: are the ultimate ideal. And perhaps it's better to let monks write about monks and talk about our traditions ourselves internally, rather than, you know, the people who just kind of like peer in and look at 100%. So uh, my last question for you, Josh, uh, relates to kind of the effectiveness of Cassian, and his program. So he, he envisions and attempts to construct this ideal monasticism uh as he, uh, you know, settles in uh, the Christian West, as you have described uh, a superior way of, uh, practicing, you know, monasticism than what that he found existing there already. But he also, if you are correct, and I, I think you're on the right track at least, uh, wanted to uh, set up his um, uh, monastic order as somewhat distinct from the institutional church and the clergy. So I'm wondering if you'll reflect for us on how and to what degree Cassing was ultimately successful in his aims. Uh, did, do you see the monastic orders having been kind of co-opted by the church uh, for the most part, or were his reformist and uh, divisional intentions realized, even if for a brief period? On And uh, do you still see any reverberations of his program in surviving relations between the church and the monastery? So the first answer is, he absolutely failed
0: to set up any sort of separation. Um, they were eventually totally co-opted, which is, I think, predictable. Sure, um, No one thinks of monasteries or monks as separate from the church and that's includes in both the catholic tradition and in all the orthodox traditions mm-hmm. um yeah i i have actually spoken to modern monks a few times and mentioned this sort of attempted separation that i think was going on and they all seemed kind of horrified <laughs> um which makes sense when thinking back on it because for them their entire lives it has been an integral part of the church Definitely. so um in that sense cassian failed miserably However, um, a lot of the specific and practical suggestions he had have been institu- were instituted not long after him and sort of worldwide in, in Western-type monasteries, um, certainly across Western Europe. So, for example, Benedict Nursius' rule, which is still used in monasteries all over the West, um, still use, basically used
1: Cassian as one of his main sources.
0: So that's a huge victory. With,
1: with attribution or without? Uh, with with it. And, and in fact, so
0: like Cassian, um, Cassian advocated for this, but didn't make as big of a deal of it in, in Benedict's rule during mealtimes, one person is supposed to read to the group and, and nobody's supposed to speak. Scripture is obviously preferable, but one of the, one of the two things he says can be read in addition are Cassian's writings. So, um, that's a big deal and, and it, and it continues to this day I had to check at a, another monastery like are cassians writing still read yes so I mean that's a huge you know centuries-long influence and obviously they were preserved for a reason absolutely yes exactly um so we, on, a, on the one hand with his focus on asceticism I think he would have been a little disappointed by monks you know driving cars and watching TV today and things like that but um you have to say that a lot of the traditions he transmitted um, were spread all over the world and become standard in monasteries. Uh, the schedule of prayers he wrote still goes on in monasteries. There are modifications, obviously, but for both
1: Catholics and Orthodox monastics, this is still—he's still the basis. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Josh, it's been um, a pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, this has been a, a, a nice uh, endeavor to go on with you to revisit uh, your work from uh, your dissertation that has now been turned into a book. So I'm interested to see where other scholars go with uh, your take on Cassian and, you know, your ideas about the positionality of monasticism to the ecclesiastics once it gets consumed by sort of a wider basis. Uh, What are you working on next? Where's your work heading next? And where will we uh, see you next? Well, I'm working a lot more
0: on Jewish Christianity right now and and, um, scholarship on the Didache, sort of reconceptualizing that as possibly somewhat formative to early
1: monasticism. So we'll see. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for your work on monasticism, and for being our guest on the New Books Network. Thank you. Again, Dr. Schechterle's book is John Casting and the Creation of Monastic Subjectivity, and it's available now from Equinox Books. I've been Rob Heaton, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books and Biblical Studies, and I'll be with you again on your next download. But in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thank you. Bye-bye.